This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The courts have actually succeeded in slicing off the low-hanging fruit, and now we're actually having a serious debate about how much discretion the president has in immigration policy. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the law and the Constitution and all that good stuff. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts and the law for Slate magazine. And this week, the high court is out still on its long winter break. But the team here at Amicus thought it might be a good moment to talk a little bit about America. Uh, just just going to go with that. Um, and this sort of large roiling conversations we're now having in the courts around DACA, uh, around the travel ban, around sanctuary cities. Uh, it seems as though there is this new urgency to figure out uh, who belongs here, who doesn't, and who gets to pick. Uh, and there is no one I'd rather talk about that with then Steve Vladek. He teaches law at the University of Texas. Uh, his teaching focuses on federal jurisdiction, constitutional law, and national security. He's also a CNN Supreme Court analyst and co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog. And so, Steve, I, you've been with us, but it's been a long time. So thank you for coming back to join us on Amicus. Thank you for having me. So, so let me ask you that same framing question I just started <laughs> with, which is, uh, it seems as though there is a tremendous amount of litigation right now in this country surrounding these existential questions about who is American, who gets to be American, who gets to pick, who gets to uh, sit in judgment of the kinds of folks that can come either as refugees or as immigrants or even in some instances uh, as visitors. So can you just talk in, you know, from way, way, way lofty heights of levels of abstraction about this anxiety and, and how it connects in your view uh, to what Trumpism is all about a year in? Sure. I mean, I, it's funny. I actually had written a, a blog post basically a week before the inauguration um, in 2017, where I predicted that, you know, despite all of the press attention about emoluments and ethical considerations and other sort of, you know, hot button policy issues, that immigration was really going to be the dominant theme and the dominant legal question of the first year of the Trump administration. Um, I guess I was I was right in the sense that it was a dominant question, but wrong about it being the dominant question. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Dahlia, I think what we're seeing is the natural reaction to what are a series of fairly radical shifts in policy 
you know, at the top levels of government. Um, shifts that reasonable people can certainly debate the policy wisdom of, but shifts nonetheless. Um, and that we're seeing, you know, I think aggressive, relatively hostile anti-immigrant policies of the like that we haven't seen in generations. And so that's why I think this all seems so fraught. We did not see this, you know, during the Bush administration. We really didn't see this even during the the Reagan or George H.W. Bush administration. So I think part of what's going on here is, you know, a president and an attorney general who are openly committed to fairly radical shifts in our immigration policy, for better or for worse, and the inevitable uncertainty of the litigation um, that those kinds of shifts provoke. And, and, and maybe the other just precatory question I want to ask you, Steve, is how good are the courts at assessing those kinds of things? And I, and I say that, you know, you and I think about the courts all the time, but one of the things that has been a hallmark of uh, certainly the travel ban litigation is real questions about how much the courts actually know about national security, how well positioned uh, judges are to make determinations that might second guess other branches of government. And so in a weird way, I think the courts, tell me if I'm wrong, uh, are, are, are not all that well situated to answer some of the questions that you've just posed. So I think that's certainly a sentiment you hear a lot, and it's certainly reflected in older cases. Um, you know, I may be an outlier here, but I actually think that if you look at the work of the federal courts in, you know, what to me are the more obvious national security cases of the last 15 years, so the Guantanamo habeas cases, the military commission cases, some of these surveillance cases, um, there's actually a quietly remarkable trend of federal courts deciding the merits of very sophisticated, complex, and sensitive national security cases um, and doing so, you know, without sustained um, skepticism or schizophrenia about their competence to do so. And so I think, you know, it's certainly true that in prior moments in American history, certainly in the 1950s, the last time the Supreme Court had this flood of immigration-related cases descend upon it. Um, there was this prevailing mindset that, you know, assessing the merits of national security justifications proffered by the government wasn't the court's job. I think that's softened a bit where, you know, the executive branch will still often, although perhaps not always, receive deference when it comes to its national security assessments, but where we're seeing, you know, even relatively conservative justices, I think of like Chief Justice Roberts in the Munaf versus Guerin case from 2008, saying, but, you know, we as courts have a role to play in ensuring that that deference does not equal abdication. And that if the government is, you know, here with national security related arguments, those arguments are at least plausible on their face. And I think that's where the travel ban cases especially get very interesting. Um, you know, maybe the sanctuary city and DACA cases less so. Okay, let's let's do DACA first, because I think it's on the headlines every single day. But I think that the litigation is simmering under uh, what we're seeing in in Congress. So so let me try to set the table and then you tell me where I'm wrong and unpack it. Um, for listeners uh, who may have forgotten, DACA is established by Barack Obama by way of executive order in 2012 and essentially uh, allows immigrants who've entered the U.S. without legal authorization before the age of 16, uh, who've attended school uh, or served in the military, who have no criminal record to get these renewable two-year 
reprieves from deportation. That's DACA. And in September of last year, Donald Trump orders the program eliminated by March 5th unless Congress enacts it into law. That's DACA, right? Uh, that's that's the, the, the short and dirty version of it, yes. Okay. Well, we aspire to both short and dirty. So let's let's talk about the litigation. Can you can you set the table? There there are several cases, but maybe we'll focus on uh, William Alsop. Uh, talk about where we are right now on the DACA litigation, Steve. Sure. So there have been a couple of different lawsuits, um, and frankly, Dolly, coming from a couple of different directions that are trying to either litigate the merits of DACA um, or the merits of President Trump's decision that you mentioned to rescind DACA. And, you know, they're sort of all colliding at the Supreme Court at the same time. So um, there's actually an older case called Brewer versus Arizona Dreamers Coalition, um, where the governor of Arizona and a handful of other plaintiffs are challenging the legality of DACA. Um, The Supreme Court's actually been sitting on that case for almost a year now. They're waiting for the government to file a brief expressing a view as to whether or not they should grant it. But the the more pressing lawsuit and the one that provoked Judge Alsup's decision you know, about a month ago um, was filed by the regents of the University of California and a handful of other public and private plaintiffs um, challenging the rescission of DACA. And what Judge Alsup, the federal district judge in San Francisco, ruled on January 9th um, is that the rescission of DACA, the Trump administration's decision to to sort of eliminate it, um, was a violation of the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA, because it was based on sort of inappropriate reasoning. Um, basically, the rescission was based on uh, Secretary Lane Duke's conclusion that DACA was itself illegal. And what Judge Alsop held on January 9th is that's just not true um, and that the government, although it might have broad policy discretion to rescind a program like DACA purely for policy reasons, cannot use an incorrect legal analysis as the pretext for rescinding a program and then say we have to do it because it's illegal, um, that that's arbitrary and capricious in violation of the APA. Um, That decision obviously provoked a whole lot of controversy, I think, um, certainly among conservative libertarian scholars. Um, But I think it's, Dahlia, sometimes mischaracterized by those critics and in the press. Um, Judge Alsop did not rule that the government can't rescind DACA. What he ruled was that the way they did it violated the APA because they relied on what is basically a faulty, um, if not wholly pretextual, justification. Well, well, let me ask you two things. One, talk about the injunction for a mm-hmm. minute because yep. this becomes important. Yep. Um, so, so Judge Alsop, at the end of his ruling, says, I am therefore issuing um, a nationwide injunction barring the government from rescinding DACA um, or at least from continuing to rescind DACA, at least under this uh, reasoning, um, you know, at least indefinitely. Preliminary injunction pending full resolution of what's going to happen from there. So, you know, this was the latest in a series of what have become increasingly controversial nationwide injunctions where a single district judge um, is purporting to put a federal program on hold. I think it's worth stressing we've seen these especially in the immigration context where I think there are, you know, intriguing and important considerations about not having different rules in different parts of the country. But also these aren't new to President Trump. I mean, these actually started coming into vogue during the Obama administration um, and especially from district judges in, in my home state of Texas. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, so now let's move on to um, we have this amazing moment. I think it's described, quote, uh, by the Solicitor General's office as the rare step where the Justice Department says we're just going to fast track the appeal of Judge Alsop's uh, decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. We're leapfrogging the Ninth Circuit. Um, Talk a little bit about how rare that step is and what it (laughs) signifies to you. Yeah. I mean, so so on January 18th, nine days after Alsop's decision, the government filed um, a petition for cert before judgment. This is, as you say, a rare vehicle. Um, the last time the Supreme Court actually granted a petition for cert before judgment was in 2004 um, in a companion case to the more well-known Booker case about the constitutionality of the federal sentencing guidelines. The last time the Supreme Court granted a petition for cert before judgment you know, in a standalone merits case, Dahlia, I think, was 1988. Um, and was the Mistretta case about also, ironically, the sentencing guidelines. Um, so this is not something the Supreme Court does every day. Um, and the government's basic argument for why they should get this expedited consideration and basically leapfrog the Ninth Circuit um, is because of the March deadline and the sort of uncertainty that could result from not knowing whether the rescission of DACA is effective or not for the better part of another year, right? So the government's basic position is one way or the other, we should be able to sort this out now so that we, the government, can responsibly figure out how either to wind DACA down or whether we have to go back to the drawing board and keep it alive or at least come up with different reasons for rescinding it. It's important here to flag that the Supreme Court agrees, right? Um, and, and I think in part because not only is the Supreme Court waiting for Congress to figure its stuff out, but the lower courts have to figure its stuff out. It puts the Supreme Court yet again in this unenviable position of being uh, the only grown-up branch of government in the room, right? It, it, it appears to. And, and unlike in the travel ban case, Um, Here, the Supreme Court has really expedited matters. So um, the court is actually, obviously, it hasn't yet ruled on the petition for cert before judgment, but it did grant over the the plaintiff's respondent's objection, the government's request to expedite the consideration of the whole thing. So, you know, the court clearly is at least willing to decide whether to take this expedited appeal on an expedited basis, um, and Dahlia probably with an eye, if necessary, toward having it argued and decided like the travel ban, you know, sometime between now and the end of June. Okay. So so that's DACA. And, and I want you to explain one more time for folks whose eyes have glazed over that this is just an incredibly technical argument. I mean, this is not an existential referendum on DACA. This is a decision about how decisions get taken, right? That's the issue. So not only that, Dolly, but I mean, I think it's worth stressing. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding not just DACA, but the underlying uh, Fifth Circuit decision that wasn't about DACA, that was actually about a different program, DAPA, um, right, Deferred Action for Parents of Childhood Arrivals, um, where, again, you know, folks like to sort of point to the Fifth Circuit as throwing out 
President Obama's program. Actually, all the Fifth Circuit held there in a case called Texas versus United States was that as Judge Alsop held here, the government had failed to comply with the Administrative Procedure Act in how it promulgated that program, DAPA, in the first place. So I, I think the most important point is what is really going on in the courts, at least, is a very technical fight over how much administrative authority the government has to both create a program like DACA and rescind it. That's a very different conversation from the one that's clearly dominating the discourse in Washington um, over dreamers, what Congress should do, how the government's you know continuing resolution and funding bills should depend upon a deal for the dreamers. You know, the litigation is not a sideshow by any stretch, but it's so hyper-technical compared to the the bigger, I think, more um, accessible policy questions that are really getting kicked around in the political branches. And and to double down on the bloodless wonkiness of the legal conversation, could you just talk for a minute about the even more meta conversation that happened uh, in this litigation around discovery issues? Because <laughs> well, that really is both eye glazing, but I also think just intriguing. Can you can you unroll it for us? I can try. I mean, I think we don't. We, you know, there's there's a, there's some of it's sort of cloaked in the internal deliberations of the Supreme Court. So before we even got to the point of the government seeking this rare, you know, expedited certiorari before judgment to review the district court in this case, there was a whole discovery dispute where basically the plaintiffs had sought large swaths of documents from the Department of Homeland Security and from the Department of Justice um, relating to the process that those agencies followed in choosing to rescind DACA um, on the theory that those documents were relevant to the plaintiff's underlying APA claim that the agencies had acted for inappropriate reasons, that they had acted arbitrarily and capriciously. Um, that generated a very pro-plaintiff discovery order from Judge Alsip um, that the government then successfully obtained a writ of mandamus from the there Supreme Court. Mandamus. This yep. This extraordinary- we this extraordinary remedy, I did go there, um, <laughs> where basically the Supreme Court issued an order to Judge Alsop saying, you know, come on, guy, chill out, right? You don't need to sort of provoke this huge conflict over just how much of the government's internal deliberations are discoverable. You can decide this case just on the basis of the existing what's called administrative record. Um, and what's interesting about the the Supreme Court's, you know, uh, opinion accompanying the the mandamus order from from late last year is you know it basically reads like a compromise like someone like justice Breyer, for example just banged everybody's heads together and said listen we don't want to resolve anything big here let's just tell the district court he doesn't need to do this he can go back and try again and we'll wait for this case to get here on the merits so you know this case already has an interesting um history in the Supreme Court. And frankly, Dahlia, one that probably makes it that much more likely that the justices will indeed um, grant the government's petition for cert before judgment, not because they're necessarily inclined to side with the government, but because they're at least sufficiently interested in the case and convinced that it should be they who have the last word on a question like this one. So, so let's let's pivot to the, oh, I said the word pivot. Let's <laughs> 
Let us pivot now, having said mandamus, to the travel ban, Steve, because this is the other uh, litigation. You know, we did whole shows on this a year ago. Uh, and now I think there's it, a It's sense- back and better than ever. It's well, it is certainly back. And uh, we've had three iterations of the travel ban. It starts right uh, about a year ago with this executive order barring the nationals of seven overwhelmingly Muslim countries from entering the U.S., uh, calling for uh, whatever extreme vetting is and uh, really putting into place what what appeared to be a, a Trump campaign promise. And then Boom! Airports and <laughs> lawsuits and the screaming and the, you know, 2.0 and then the 3.0. So can you help us understand what the third iteration of the travel ban brings to us and why the Supreme Court is looking at this for the first time, despite the fact that they've been watching over this for a year? I'll do my best. Um, no promises. Um, so so the third or by some accounts fourth, but, but we'll just say third version of the travel ban, which is basically the version that's articulated by the president in a memorandum issued on September 24th, 2017, um, is in many ways the kinder, gentler, um, or if you want to go with the president's own characterizations on Twitter, more politically correct version um, of the original travel bans. And there are a couple of really big differences. Um, So big difference number one is the list of countries is not just Muslim-majority countries anymore. Um, So for example, um, Chad and North Korea have made it onto the list of countries from which travel is restricted. North Korea with the 13, you know, nationals who tried to enter the United States lawfully last year. Um, So that, I think, is at least partially designed to reflect or to, to dissipate some of the sort of anti-Muslim animus charges. Dolly, it's also more nuanced in the kinds of waivers and exceptions that are built into the ban. So as opposed to the first version, which was just a blanket categorical, if you're from this country, you can't enter the United States ban, there's now a lot more wiggle room um, in the ban for a national say of one of the blocked countries to walk into their local U.S. embassy um, and seek permission to travel, to seek a waiver, to get around the ban. So, you know, the government's basic submission um, is that this ban doesn't suffer from the constitutional problems, um, the anti-Muslim animus of the first or second versions, and that as a statutory matter, because of these waivers and because of the more, I think, involved and sophisticated deliberative process the government went through to promulgate this version, um, it no longer is subject to the statutory problems that both the Fourth and Ninth Circuits had identified um, with travel bans 1.0 and 2.0. Um, those arguments did not succeed in convincing the judges who had struck down the earlier versions. So um, Judge Chuang in the District of Maryland um, and um, – the judge in Hawaii, whose name I'm currently blanking on because there are too many judges. Um, Derek Watts- Watson? Judge Watson, exactly. Thank you. Um, right. Once again, issued nationwide injunctions against even the third version of the travel ban. Um, the Ninth Circuit affirmed Judge Watson's injunction on statutory grounds. We're actually still waiting for the en banc Fourth Circuit to rule, or at least we were when we recorded this podcast, um, which is a <laughs> bit surprising because they're sort of dragging their feet. And in December, um, the Supreme Court actually granted a stay of the two injunctions 
um, basically saying, you know, we recognize that these injunctions are there, but we're not as convinced as, say, we were, you know, in June that they're so obviously problematic um, that the travel ban is so obviously flawed. Um, and so the court actually put the injunctions on hold in December um, so that the new travel ban actually could and did go into effect. Um, and then that all led to the government's cert petition filed on January 5th, um, challenging the Ninth Circuit's decision. Um, on Friday, uh, January 19th, the Supreme Court granted the government's cert petition and, Dolly, interestingly added to the government's two questions presented, which were just the statutory issues decided by the Ninth Circuit, the dominant question in the Fourth Circuit case which is whether the travel ban violates the Establishment Clause. Um, and I think the reason, again, why the court is moving so quickly is because they are now convinced, um, the justices are at least, that this should be resolved this term. And by granting certiorari when they did, you know, it's possible to expedite the briefing, argue the case in April, decided by June. Okay, so the gossip question first. Uh, at, at this point, the Supreme Court is not deciding these five four liberal conservatives anymore, correct? At least not in the stay orders, right? So yep. you know the the stay order that was issued um, on December fourth that basically allowed travel ban three to go into effect. Um, only two dissents were no well, not really dissents. Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor noted that they would have denied the application for a stay. So you know you could read that as Justices Breyer and Kagan. Um, at least not objecting to the stay. And so maybe you could portray that as seven to two. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know that this is going to be five, four, even when we get to the merits in June. I mean, I think the the statutory objections to the travel ban are not ideological in a way that some of the constitutional objections are. Um, and in many ways, they actually might wrong foot at least a couple of the justices. So, you know, it's not totally clear to me at all that the government is definitely going to win this case um, on the merits. It's not clear that they're going to lose. But I think the most important point when I try to sort of talk about this with my students is, you know, even if the government wins, this is travel ban 3.0. This is such a different policy and different series of restrictions than the initial ones that the lower court struck down that I'm not sure, you know, a win is going to be vindication for the Trump administration so much as a, I think, really colorful example of a, an ongoing interbranch conversation between the courts and the president. So, so to make explicit what you just said, this is uh, the Trump administration course correcting, refining uh, based on this conversation it's been having with uh, the federal district courts and the federal circuit courts. And that's the system working not the system failing. I mean, to me at least, you know, there are, as, 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 as you know, I mean, there are lots of folks who think that the lower court decisions on the travel ban um, have been emblematic of some kind of, you know, judicial resistance. Um, and I just think that's not either fair or defensible on the merits. I mean, you know, reasonable people are going to disagree about how to answer messy, complicated, statutory and constitutional questions of first impression. Um, that's as it should be. And I think there's, you know, there's not anywhere near the kind of proof I think we'd want to see that the judges who are ruling for or against the Trump administration in these cases um, are doing so for any other reason than because their best resolution of the merits questions lead them to that result. 
So, so Steve, I want to close with the question I think I have asked every single guest who's been on this show to talk about the travel ban. Uh, so I'm just going to ask it. Uh, but it but it, it dovetails so beautifully with what you just said, which is it, it's been my sense, and I think it's been my cynical sense, that the courts are starting to suffer from what I have characterized as umbrage fatigue, that you can only set your hair on fire four times a day, and after a year, you're just, you have no hair left. And, and I wonder if... Um, you're pushing back on that and saying it's not that the courts are exhausted or worn down. It's that the courts are, in fact, creating a a process that is kind of normal and that is a constitutional imperative, which is fix this thing. It's getting fixed. And that the reason that uh, the courts are slowly coming online isn't because they're worn down, but because the travel ban itself is worn down. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I heard Masha Gessen on NPR not that long ago um, um, make the opposite vo- version of this argument, that that the travel ban had worn the courts down and that what's going on now is basically just submission on the court's part. And I think that's just that's, – that's, you know, that's – I think a little bit oblivious to just how material the differences are in the policy that might ultimately get upheld by the Supreme Court in June compared to what was originally promulgated. And I guess, you know, Dahlia, in this respect, I'm mindful of, you know, again, my experience in the Guantanamo cases. I mean, the, you know, there's the same charge leveled in the Guantanamo cases that the reason why the Supreme Court has largely stayed out of Guantanamo since 2008. Um, is because they're suffering from what I think Linda Greenhouse described as Guantanamo fatigue. But, you know, I, I think that there's also such a radical change in the kinds of questions that Guantanamo was presenting. In 2002 and 2003, 2004, the questions were about whether courts should have any role in supervising detention and potentially torture of, you know, enemy combatants. And the Supreme Court, you know, slowly and in increasingly aggressive decisions in 2004, 2008, 2008, said, yes, the court should have a role. Um, And then when the question turned to, so what are the merits of these cases? And when should the government be able to win these cases? And when should they be able to lose? The Supreme Court said, you know, we're we're not going to dive in and sort of micromanage the D.C. Circuit. Um, Reasonable folks can sort of agree or disagree with whether the court ought to be taking more of those cases. But the, the key, I think, is that from the institutional perspective, the court actually had already won because it had settled the notion that at least the federal courts in general would be the ones to resolve you know, those disputes. And I think the travel ban cases are analogous, right, that what is now being litigated through the courts is such a, I think, more modest, even if still problematic policy, that the real question we should be asking is if this is what the Trump administration had proposed all along. If the, you know, executive order issued in January 2017 had been a carefully vetted, interagency approved version of Travel Ban 3.0, would there have been the same kind of outrage at all? Um, Or is what's going on that, you know, the courts have actually succeeded in slicing off the low-hanging fruit and now we're actually having a serious debate about how much discretion the president has in immigration policy. And I guess I'm just inclined, perhaps because of my own, you know, sort of proclivities to assume it's the latter. 
So, so that forces me to ask your proclivities. Um, do you do you think it is then improper for the judges uh, at the appeals courts and the district courts to continue to hang on to the Trump tweets, to hang on to the campaign speeches and the promises as evidence that hey, three it's still as racist as before? Is that is that just unseemly at this point? In other words, I think Masha Gessen's point is like bring back those judges. <laughs> Bring back the judges who really were affronted by this. And and I think what you're saying is those judges were reacting to that ban. And at this point, uh, judges at all the the levels of abstraction need to put down the, the fury of a year ago. And, you know, yes, uh, those campaign speeches were appalling. Yes, what was on the website until literally the day the Fourth <laughs> Circuit was hearing the first travel ban case was appalling. But this is not that. So I, I, I guess I'm going to give a frustrating law professor in between answer. Um, That's why we invited you. Go ahead. <laughs> which is, I think it depends, Dolly, on which specific claim we're talking about. So, you know, I think on the question of whether the president had authority under the relevant provisions of the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act, to undertake this policy and to pursue these remedies, you know, against these groups of immigrants. Um, I, frankly, I've thought all along that courts might have been over-relying on his rhetoric and his statements because I think that is a question of administrative law much more than it's a question about, you know, the president's intent um, and that the statements were relevant in that respect only because they suggested that the, you know, formally proffered justifications, which turned out to be pretty empty, were in fact pretextual. But, you know, when it comes to the sort of discrimination claims at the heart of these cases, basically the the Establishment Clause question that's at the heart of the Fourth Circuit case that the Supreme Court added to the cert grant, no, I think the president's intent is still relevant because especially if you believe in a unitary executive, if the real reason why the government is undertaking a policy that it might have the statutory authority to pursue is because of anti-Muslim animus. I, of course, to me, that's still relevant, at least on the constitutional issue. And so I think, you know, there's a tendency on the part of critics and commentators to simplify what really is a multi-layered dispute. Um, and I think the, the question is not whether the president's statements are relevant. The question is, to which claim are they relevant and to what degree? Um, and when the Supreme Court gets these cases, I mean, I think one of the reasons why I'm not at all convinced that they're going to side with the administration is because one of the ways to avoid getting into the messiness of the president's motives and statements and you know potentially malicious intent is to just hold that he didn't have statutory authority in the first place because um, otherwise they actually do have to get their hands dirty um, you know playing in that mud. Stephen Vladek teaches law at the University of Texas. He is CNN Supreme Court analyst, co-editor-in-chief of the Just Security blog, which you should bookmark, uh, and con and a senior contributor to the Lawfare blog, and apt to take my blood pressure down significant amounts every time we talk. Steve, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thanks, Dolly. It's a pleasure to be on. Time now to tout one of the other amazing podcasts in Slate's audio stable, and this podcast has 
all the best words. Trumpcast is a quasi-daily podcast from Slate that sets out to understand the real Donald Trump. Jacob Weisberg, chairman of Slate, along with writer Virginia Heffernan and Slate chief political correspondent Jamel Bowie, talk to historians and psychiatrists and national security experts and other people who help explain who this man is and why all this is happening right now in the United States of America. One reason to stick around and listen on any big news day, we will update the show as events unravel. So, for instance, shows on the firing of James Comey, Bob Mueller's opening salvo and Flynn breaks. What's next? And that is a wrap for this week's episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate it. If you would like to get in touch, our email is always amicus at slate.com. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Keep your letters and your posts on Facebook coming. We really do love to hear from you. And we appreciate the time it takes to write in transcripts for the show are always available to Slate Plus members. And today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with you in two short weeks for another episode of Emicus. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.